All right, we're going to switch gears here and have a conversation that, like I've said before, I, I understand it. I do. But at the same time, I don't. It, it, because it's it's a conversation about, ultimately, what is legal and what is not legal when it comes to war. What is legal and not legal when it comes to killing the enemy. That's that that's what it comes down to, which on the surface is, is strange if you think about it, because, I mean, that's... That's the ultimate sin, right? I, I think it's the, I think it's the first commandment. You can't kill. I mean, it, it's 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 what's worse than killing somebody? Well, there are ways to make it worse, especially in wartime, and that depends on you know who the person is and the weapons used and all these sorts of things. So I get it. I understand that, but at the same time, the end purpose is the same. So it, it's an interesting conversation. So when we're talking about it, how do we determine what is legal, what isn't legal? Who determines that? What's the consequences? I mean, there's, it's, a, it's a very interesting discussion and one that's playing out right now as a result of what we saw in Bucha, Ukraine, over the weekend. Clear evidence of what we call and consider to be war crimes, right? Um, so now there's a discussion about who should be held accountable, how should they be held accountable, um, and the questions go on. So we're going to have a discussion about that now. Joining us to try and give us some insight is Nisha Shaw, who's an Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. No, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It, it You know, on the surface, do you agree? Does this whole war crimes discussion in some way seem a little strange? Because no matter what action is taken or weapons are used or whatever, the end goal is the same. You're trying to kill and maim people. And yet we're putting rules around how you can do that. It is a strange conversation, isn't it? I think it, uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, that how do we draw this distinction between what kind of violence is legitimate and what kind of violence is not Ill, uh, and what kind of violence is illegitimate and sh- should be rendered illegal. And I think the first place to start is that clearly this is an illegal war. The, uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine is not condoned by any kind of laws or morals in the, that underwrite the international system. But then when we have war itself, when we talk about active combat, the laws of war draw lines between what we should and should not do in war. And as you said, the end result is often that people die. And yeah. often we use weapons that are designed to make them die in specific ways. So why are we, where does it, where do we come up with the notion that something is a crime and something is not a crime in war? And that, um, I think what we fail to often understand in war is war is brutal. So I think a lot of the media attention strikes us as the rules must have been broken. And in many cases, they are. What's happened in Bukha, the yeah. uh, accusation of rape, those are clear acts that have been um, stipulated by international law as acts that cannot be uh, legitimately done in war. They are war crimes. But on the flip side, a lot of public attention has been focused on the types of weapons used and the impact of those weapons. And many of those weapons are legitimate to use. Uh, Canada has sent them, NATO countries have been asked to send more, and those those weapons are brutal in their effects, and they can often kill people and are often designed to kill people. So war is this very complicated thing that it is actually a set of actions, a set of violent acts, that were legitimate, legitimated to do. But mm-hmm. there are right ways and wrong ways to do war. And that's what the laws of war try to do. Many people assume that the laws of war try to prevent war. 
actually the rules to say how should war be properly done. Which, yeah, I mean, and I guess it makes sense. You need to have these rules. Uh, yeah, okay. So, first of all, when we talk about these these rules, who, who, who comes up with the rules? How do we determine? Um, you know, is there an international accepted level of violence? Or, I mean, how do we come up with, okay, that's okay, but this isn't in the, in the theater of war? So, the, the laws of war we have now are by all accounts, are relatively recent. They have a history that uh, is rooted in the mid-19th century, um, in the development of international law, and they come from a really genuine concern to actually what we call minimize the violence of war, that war is inherently something brutal and violent, and if it is unavoidable, how could we make it what they call more humane? That's why the laws of war are actually called international humanitarian law. It's about trying to minimize the violence. And so these have been developed over time in a variety of treaties and conventions. The most probably central is what we call the Geneva Convention that outline a series of like protections that civilians should not be intentionally targeted, but also a series of restrictions that certain weapons, certain kinds of weapons should not be used. But even though you say certain things should not be done in war, it implies that actually certain things are permissible in war. And I think one of the brutal facts about war is that for all of the violence that's there, most of what happens in war is actually permitted. And the crimes of war are the ones that get most attention, and they deserve the attention that they get. But they're actually minuscule compared to the many acts of violence that allow war to happen and allow war to be waged. And so when we're defining a crime of war, we look to international law, which is uh, implemented by a variety of different um, bodies. But really, it's different countries who have signed on to these agreements. Increasingly, there's been talk of the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. And all of these kind of agencies together try to uphold the system of law. Now, the one thing that you could do to uphold law is also do your counterattack, right? Which is sure. why there's been all this attention to will NATO yeah. NATO intervene. Um, and so that's kind of how the system of international law has been developed and how it's been, been implemented. Um, and then there's the discussion of, well, how do we use those rules to distinguish between the acts of violence and which ones are legitimate? that people are using to defend themselves from attack, and which ones are actually acts of atrocity. Um, And the distinction here in war is not how many people have died, but how they have died. So you could attack, uh, you, you could wage an attack in which civilians might die, but if you didn't intentionally try to kill them and you used a weapon, a weapon that is actually sanctioned by international law, it's not actually illegal. And you could kill one person in a method that is considered illegal, and that would be the crime, whereas killing a thousand people would be seen as legitimate. Yeah, and so I think there's this kind of absurdity in the laws of war, um, in which uh, you, you could go either which way on this when you say that the laws of war are absurd. You could either say, well, why have any rules at all? Right. Because if the end result is you open the segment with the end result is that everybody's going to die. Why do we care how we do it? How how can there be a humane way to kill people? 
But the other question then to ask is, why does war have this legal apparatus, um, this moral value that is ingrained in our very political systems, right? So at four o'clock today, the Canadian government is issuing, you know, the the budget. And one of the key uh, headlines around it is, are we increasing defense spending? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so a lot of our resources go to kind of the apparatus of war. Um, and I think lots of people would say, well, we need that. We need to be able to defend ourselves. And once you, you, you get there, then you say, okay, well, what actions are permissible and what actions are not permissible if we were to, to use violence even to defend ourselves? Um, Nisha, I still have so much I want to ask you. Can you hang on for a couple of minutes and we'll come back? Sure. Oh, I appreciate it very much. We're talking with Nisha Shaw, who is a um, professor in uh, international relations at the University of Ottawa. We'll take a quick break and continue the conversation right after this. All right, we're talking about war crimes. What constitutes a war crime? Who determines? And um, trying to wrap our heads around the whole concept because it's interesting. And we're getting some help from Nisha Shaw, who's an associate professor in international relations at the University of Ottawa. Nisha, thanks so much for uh, sticking around for a little longer because uh, I have a lot of questions. I appreciate your time very much today. No problem. I uh, I enjoy speaking about this. <laughs> well, in in a limited perspective, I suppose. <laughs> I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, when we talk about weaponry, like you said, Canada um, sending a lot of weapons. A lot of NATO countries, a lot of Western countries sending weapons to help Ukraine defend themselves in the face of Russian aggression. That's the story, right? Um, some weapons are okay, and others aren't. The question I have is, how do we determine that? Like, are they tested or is it after first use? Like, how do we come around to say, because, I mean, it's as minuscule as, okay, you can use a bullet that um, fragments when it hits whatever it's traveling towards, unfortunately, people usually. But if it spreads after it hits the body, that's illegal. Can fragment? Okay. But it can't spread. Like, how do we make those kinds of distinct? Are they tested? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So... And then how how does the testing take place? I think that's one of the things that your yeah. your question is really highlighted. Some of that testing happens in the laboratory, and the history of bullets has very much been about uh, testing it in you know live and dead animals and ballistic soap or ballistic gelatin. But the crux of the issue in terms of determining whether, let's say, a specific weapon or even a specific bullet is legitimate goes back to those laws that I was describing that emerged in the mid to late 19th century. And there's a principle in the um, that has progressed over time called the principle of preventing unnecessary suffering and superfluous injury. So okay. basically, if you use a kind of bullet... You know, what? basically the question is this. What kind of hole in the head is it acceptable to produce? Is something overkill, and would something else just be good enough to accomplish what you want to do? So that is there a kind of suffering that a weapon would inflict that really would be what we call inhumane, right? This is why chemical weapons have been banned. It's why landmines have been banned. And... Uh, as we're speaking, there is a meeting in Geneva to look at the use of kind of explosive munitions in highly populated urban areas, right? Do these cause wounds that really are excessive to what's necessary? Some of that, as I said, is done in a laboratory. Some of that becomes clear after they've been used. 
right? So that you see the consequences, let's say, of landmines would be a great example, something that was widely used in the late 20th century, seen as legitimate to use. And increasingly, we saw that both in war and after war, um, the effects on civilians and the kind of maiming they did to human bodies was considered inhumane and they were they were banned it was a a ban that canada in fact uh, was a key participant in so so is yeah, there sorry. is there so like that, a that's kind of the parameters is is there like a I, I don't know if you would call it like a a guiding principle or like a vision is there is there is there sort of okay well this is our standard as the international groups that take a look at whether or not a weapon will be deemed legitimate or illegal is there sort of okay this is this is the qualifying like i mean like you say i mean quote unquote humanely or with as little additional suffering or superfluous suffering i get it but is, is that sort of the guiding principle here is that stated anywhere yeah, so the principle is stated in a number of conventions. I would say probably the most recent is Article 35 of the Geneva Conventions that I mentioned, which were adopted in 1977. So you have that principle. But if I were to ask you, well, what counts as suffering? What counts as unnecessary? Uh, how would you answer that question? And so when weapons are being evaluated, there is, kind of this principle, but how do you actually consider Define what that, that would mean? In, yeah, in technical terms, right? In the actual design of a weapon. And that is a very, uh, like, it, it's an extensive process. Um, it involves a lot of scientists who work on, let's say, you know, weapons design. It a lot, involves a lot of international lawyers diplomats and non-governmental organizations, um, of which the International Committee for the Red Cross has been always been a key participant amongst many others, who evaluate, um, you know, what are the effects of this hypothetically, or they look at battlefield injuries to say, well, what have been okay. the consequences of these weapons? Another criteria um, that I should mention for a weapon is also what we call the principle of distinction, so that it should be something that does not um, intentionally target civilians, or it should be something in which if civilians die, it's, it's kind of what we call collateral damage. The intention should not be to cause extensive civilian um, death. So... Like that can't be the focus of what you're doing. And that can't yeah, and so this is why cluster munitions, which were used extensively in the Second World War in the air bombing of, of European cities, um, eventually have been, were banned in, I believe it's 2007, because the wide reach of the little drop bomblets, they call that, are released by a cluster munition can't distinguish, they cover such a wide area that there's no way to say, oh, this is only going to hit this right. factory that's producing weapons. Um, and so this is why the accusation that Russia may have used um, cluster munitions, that would constitute a war crime or constitute what we would call a violation of international law. Right, right. Because it's, bad, it, it's not permissible. But your ultimate question of, like, what's the standard? It's a, It's a moral standard that's very difficult to actually say, well, you should design it 
in material, like it, with a with this kind of blueprint in this way, but not in that way. Ultimately, it should be the most effective and efficient method of killing a fellow human, basically. In- well, not necessarily. Like chemical weapons are really effective and efficient. True, fair, they're fair. Seen yeah. as, they're they're seen as inhumane, right? So there is a sense that you shouldn't something like I said shouldn't be overkill. Yeah. Right. And yeah. The, the fact that you can kill somebody, but you can overkill someone is also a very kind of strange set of terminologies. But um, like the, the bullet we have right now, the NATO standard, the 5.56 millimeter bullet has this very long storied history about whether it should even have been been adopted. And um, was it as cruel as the bullet, the expanding bullet, the one that you described yeah, as yeah. flattening? Um, and they looked at the wounds and said, well, the wounds look worse. It, this oh, is it post-Vietnam. But the mechanism by which the actual bullet worked, it fragmented. It didn't flatten in the body. And that was, was the difference, yeah. Nisha, unfortunately, was, I am out of time. Yes, I, I, yeah, I, absolutely. I got to go, but I mean, I, I could talk about this for hours. We'll have you back on and, and continue this discussion because it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. It really is. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. You bet. That's Nisha Shaw.